Welcome to the Endurance Drive podcast. Our mission is to share the key principles that structure our approach to endurance training and coaching. I'm Jim. And I'm Katie. And today's episode, we have a special episode. It is about fueling for endurance athletes. Yes. And we have a special guest. So this is the first time that we're doing a podcast episode with a guest. This is something we hope to do a lot in future episodes. But I think as coaches, we say often that fueling and training go hand in hand. And we definitely provide advice to our athletes on how to fuel, especially during races or during activity. But in general, our approach to training and coaching is that we're always going to go to the experts when we really want to do a deep dive on a specific topic. So today we are going to an incredible expert to talk about nutrition for endurance athletes. And that expert is Dr. Kate Ward. So Kate earned her PhD in metabolic biology from UC Berkeley a few years ago. She also completed her training as a registered dietitian at UC San Francisco, working on a lot of different topics, including gastrointestinal nutrition, eating disorder recovery, nutrition for athletes, weight loss, etc. And currently, she's working on a postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford and also taking clients in her private practice. Kate is an athlete as well, so she really does it all. And we're so impressed with all of the expertise that she's going to be able to bring to us today. So... Let's dive in and please enjoy Katie's conversation with Kate Ward. Kate, welcome to the podcast. We are so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? What inspired you to become both a dietitian and a researcher? Yeah, so I've always been really interested in science. And from a young age, I'm one of these cliche, wanted to be a scientist for forever, I started out in undergrad studying biology and then kind of transitioned from molecular biology in undergrad to studying metabolic biology in my PhD. So more on the nutrition side of things. During my PhD, I trained to become a dietitian, became very interested in clinical human research. And then now my postdoc at Stanford is in that field. So I'm working with Christopher Gardner and Justin Sonnenberg at Stanford doing human nutrition research. My focus is mainly on the microbiome. I'm also very interested in sports nutrition. I work out a lot myself, and so it's something that I am personally interested in, as well as I see a lot of athlete clients in my private practice, and so something I'm super passionate about. That's so wonderful, and I think we really love that you bring these sort of complementary perspectives from both the research side and the practice side. So I think the first thing I'd like to ask you a little bit about is just kind of the principles. So one of the core focuses of our podcast is on the principles of endurance training and coaching. So to start us off, do you have any principles of nutrition or fueling that kind of guide your recommendations and approach? Yeah, so that's a great question. When I'm doing my nutrition counseling, I really aim to meet my clients where they're at, not taking a one-size-fits-all approach. I could give you, you know, the grams per this and the grams per hour, grams per kilogram, all of this stuff. But if someone's struggling to even meet the bare minimum, they're not going to be receptive to that. So really meeting people where they're at, seeing and identifying what their problem areas are, I found to be super helpful in helping people kind of bridge the gap between not knowing what to implement and then getting to the point where the nitty gritty does make a bigger difference, if that makes sense. Yeah, that absolutely does. And I think we have athletes, you know, who are coaching who are coming from a lot of different backgrounds. A lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about nutrition. A lot of them have never factored in at all. So I love that you have that approach. So what challenges related to nutrition do you see most often in the endurance community? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I would say underfueling is a a really common one with endurance athletes. I think it's really challenging because your hunger signaling is perturbed when you're working out so often. And so you don't want to feel like you're force feeding yourself. You know, you go your whole life and really try to honor your hunger and fullness cues. And then all of a sudden you start working out more and more and then kind of have to be mindfully fueling even if you're not feeling up to it at times. Mm. So you said something about these hunger cues being a little bit perturbed. I think I've heard at least that, you know, working out a lot can suppress appetite. Is that something that we should be aware of? Yeah, especially when you're working out quite intensely. I would say, you know, it really is personalized. And so some people get really hungry after they work out. Some people have delayed hunger for a couple hours, maybe even a day. And so I really work with my patients to kind of identify where they fall and what type of workouts signal hunger, what type of workouts seem to suppress hunger, and then making strategies that they can feel properly after these specific workouts, even when they don't feel like it. Mm. I think a question that's actually related to this is like, you know, we hear a lot about intuitive eating. And I know that that can be sort of challenging if you know that maybe your intuition might not guide you in the right direction as an endurance athlete. How do you think about intuitive eating when it comes to developing a plan for someone who's training at a really high level? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You have to be more mindful and strategic about your fueling. So even if you wake up and you don't feel hungry, you need to eat something before you go work out for a couple hours, and that doesn't feel very intuitive. So it seems to kind of clash with this. But just knowing that it's targeted, almost like when you take a medication because you're going to have a procedure done, you know, you take ibuprofen before you get your IUD put in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you need to eat something before you go on a run because it's Mm -hmm. going to be like the the medicine for that Mm -hmm. event. I love that way to think about it. And I think this is actually going to jump ahead a little bit to what I wanted to talk about. But you're talking about eating before training. Do you have thoughts on fasted training? Should you always be eating before you work out? I know I have some athletes that are working out really, really early in the morning. And Generally, as a coach, I'm recommending not fasted training, but I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, no, it's really hard. I mean, I'm definitely guilty of it at times. You know, if I have a really early meeting and I want to get on the Peloton right away, it can be really challenging to get enough fuel before. I like to recommend something like liquid fuel before, even though it's a little bit of juice or some kind of sports drink can really help bridge that gap so you don't feel like you have a ton in your stomach. Banana is a very classic one. Just a little sugar can help a lot because fasted training really does hinder recovery, hinder performance. And so, you know, if, if you need to do it in a pinch, trying to keep that workout very short. But I always recommend some kind of easy, fast, digestible fuel before. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, really great advice. And I think I know a little bit, at least on like the hormonal side for female athletes and especially for female athletes, I think it's something really to avoid just because women can be a lot more at risk of underfueling, but I'm sure you probably see it for both men and women in your practice. Yeah, definitely. It can be a a big challenge too. Like we talked about waking up and and not feeling hungry right away and Mm -hmm. you you don't want to feel like you're force feeding yourself, but you know that you need a little bit of fuel before Mm -hmm. getting into your workout. And so having to be mindful about that is important. Definitely. So this is actually a really nice segue into maybe talking a little bit about how we structure eating and fueling before activity, during activity, after activity. So do you think you could give us some recommendations for in terms of maybe macros or timing or ideas for these different times in your day? And maybe then we can start with before training. Sometimes it is going to be really early in the morning. Maybe sometimes you have more time, but let's start there. Yeah. So it really obviously depends on the duration of the workout, the intensity, but 
So I, I bike a lot. So I'll give you an example of, you know, a cyclist's day because that's something I'm quite used to. So, you know, waking up, making sure you're having carbohydrates is the most important thing before your workout. But when you're doing something all day, let's say I'm going on a six to eight hour bike ride, right? I need to make sure I'm also getting in the fuel that I need just to fuel myself for my regular daily habits. And so your breakfast, you want to be lower fiber and lower fat because if you're working on intensely, fiber can definitely disturb your GI tract and you don't want any kind of GI distress during your workout. And then fat, we just don't need as much right before we work out and again can lead to some GI distress and slowing of the metabolism of the carbohydrate fuel that we need. So keeping your breakfast higher carbohydrate and getting some protein in too can help with muscle recovery after, although protein after is definitely the most important. So something like a bagel with an egg, some kind of big and egg sandwich would be a good choice. You know, a bagel with peanut butter, a lot of people like just something really easy to digest and lower fiber. Oatmeal would be an okay amount of fiber. Oatmeal with milk and bananas is something I do a lot. You know, a little bit of protein from that either dairy or soy milk, whatever you like. Yeah, a lot of different options depending on what you like, but just the carbohydrate and protein definitely most important in that morning meal. And then when you're fueling during the ride, simple sugar is going to be your best friend. So on a bike ride, we can tolerate more fiber. So, you know, dried fruit, maybe I, I make a lot of like muffins or little cookies to bring with me compared to a long run. You might be relying on goos and gels and really simple sugars because typically we're not tolerating any fiber during those activities, depending on the intensity. So it really depends on your type of workout. And then when we get into lunch, I personally really like to take a break for lunch on my bike rides. I really like to make the lunch part of my destination. I know some cyclists don't like that, so prefer to kind of incorporate those lunch calories into the on-the-bike fueling, but I really like having a stop. So then I'll eat a full meal, again, kind of where I align on those same principles where I don't want it to be too high fiber and too high fat, but because on the bike I'm able to tolerate more than I would on a run, I typically will have a nice meal at lunch. And then, yeah, on the bike, continuing to fuel um, with carbohydrates during the duration of the cycling. And then dinner, you can start to incorporate more fiber. Again, the long days of training are going to be lower fiber. But after your workout, you can kind of start to reintroduce foods you're used to eating and just making sure you're compensating for those calories that you lost. So having dinner, having an after dinner snack, and then the next day being mindful, you're likely going to be hungry the day after or the two days after and honoring those hunger cues at that point. But yeah, just making sure to refuel properly. I think we see often that athletes will have their big day and then maybe they're not actually topped off. Maybe they're not eating enough. And the next day they have the day off. And I often see athletes like hesitate to fuel a lot on that off day because they think, okay, like I'm not exercising as much. Maybe I shouldn't be taking in as much fuel. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, it can be really hard. I think a lot of people do equate working out to calories burned, which I really encourage my clients to kind of try to separate those. Like, it's really challenging, especially growing up in the 90s as a woman. I feel like there's so much of that, you know, run a mile, it's 100 calories. It's like, sure, why don't we flip the switch and say, okay, I need to refuel 100 calories instead of thinking I need to run a mile to burn 100 calories. It's really hard because a lot of that is so ingrained. 
just from growing up at that time. I think, you know, people growing up at all times have probably felt similar things. There's always another fad diet that's come along. Mm-hmm. But yeah, trying to flip the switch to say, okay, I need to eat to fuel instead of work out to burn. I mm-hmm. think that's really important, especially in the endurance athlete community, mm-hmm. because they're so susceptible to low energy availability and all of the downstream effects of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, thinking about this culture and how we think about fueling and training and everything between, I think we always probably should be reminding our athletes, like, you don't need to earn that next meal. Everybody just baseline needs food to survive. And then figuring out how we enhance it for performance, for wellness, for health is something that I think probably you work with a lot and I definitely do as a coach. Yeah, no, super important. Um, So then thinking about, you know, beyond just like a really big training day, how do you think about other things you want to be getting in? So like micronutrients, are you thinking a lot about that? Are you thinking about macros in a different way, maybe on a day that doesn't have as much training? Yeah, no, great questions. And so like I said, on a large training day, your fiber is going to be lower. So being mindful, I, as I mentioned before, study the microbiome. Fiber is super important to feed those bugs that reside within your gut. And so making sure you're getting enough fiber on your lower intensity days or lower training days to compensate is really important. You don't need to overdo it with, you know, four Olipops or something, but, you know, just eating lentils, eating your vegetables, your whole grains, that type of thing, and just being mindful that you're getting enough fiber on those days. Uh, I always start every grant I write basically with 95% of Americans don't get enough fiber. And so a lot of my clients fall into that category. And so just being extra mindful on those days off. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side of that, this is maybe a little bit of a niche thing, but I sometimes see just athletes in general kind of gravitating towards maybe only fiber and that sometimes at the expense of getting the calories that they need. Like, you know, the the quintessential athlete who just like eats salads for every single meal. Do you see that a lot? Yeah, that's a great perspective. I, it's true. You Something like a salad, I always joke too, lettuce is really expensive water. Most of the time it's like the fiber in lettuce is so low. It's not even, if you're looking to increase your fiber, I guess I, I should say just looking for things that are carbohydrate and fiber. So you're not filling up on low calorie foods like a big salad when you really should prioritizing if you were doing something simple like beans and rice and mm-hmm. corn and these type of foods that have fiber, but also provide macronutrients like Riding the carbohydrate or providing mm-hmm. protein, I think that's a better way to fuel than something like a massive salad that's not going to provide enough mm-hmm. energy um, unless you build it the right way. I mean, I'm a big fan of a, a big salad that mm-hmm. has all your energy in it, but, mm-hmm. you know, making sure you're getting enough calories in is super important. Absolutely. So these recommendations in general, would you say that they differ at all, like across age groups or across genders? Or, you know, we have a lot of college athletes and then older athletes, and then we have athletes, male and female across the spectrum. So how do those recommendations differ, if at all? Yeah, so they can differ. I think the majority of recommendations stay fairly similar. And then there is some nuance between gender and age. You know, older women I see often aren't getting enough protein, protein Mm -hmm. recommendations increase as an individual ages. And I think a lot of my older female clients are not eating enough protein early in the morning is something I see quite often. And so just being mindful about getting protein across the entire day. Um, That being said, there was a cool study that just came out that kind of supports the thought that you don't have to necessarily distribute your protein equally across the Mm -hmm. day to harvest. I heard about that one. Yeah. But, you know, it it can help because most people don't want to eat a couple of chicken breasts for dinner. It's not very fun, nor do you need that much protein. But that's Mm -hmm. just an example of you don't need to completely backload your protein, just getting enough, you know, 
I always recommend 20 to 30 grams per meal. It's kind of a good rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. That being said, it's going to be very individualized and personalized once you actually go calculate your specific needs. But just kind of having a ballpark number can mm-hmm. be helpful. Another thing I see, college athletes often just aren't eating enough in the morning and then tend to have to kind of compensate at night, often wake up later generally, only have access to food during dining hall hours can be a big challenge. And so I think that trying to front load calories for that clientele can be very, very helpful as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So then on micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, all that other stuff, what are your recommendations there? Yeah, so I always like to ask for labs in my athletes. I don't usually like to recommend blanket supplements without having some kind of biochemical readout. So I always ask for, I can give you my list. I always do a metabolic panel, lipid panel. I click to see hemoglobin A1C, vitamin D, ferritin, and then iron and CBC as well, just to look for anemia, more common in Mm -hmm. female athletes. And so having all of those biochemical Values can be very helpful for supplementation. Um, Common supplements that I end up recommending are an iron supplement, multivitamin just to cover your bases, vitamin B6, B12, and zinc are some common ones, but are included in that multivitamin, so you're covered there. And then electrolytes are super important during and after working out, I mean before as well, but just replenishing that sweat that you're losing. So sodium, the most important one, potassium and magnesium following Often, you know, you're going to get those through your food. You're going to get those through if you're taking a multivitamin. You're going to get some of these everywhere. But just being mindful to replenish those as well, especially during the summer months when we lose a lot of our electrolytes to sweat. Yeah, I'm sure that we could probably do a whole other episode on hydration. But it's helpful to know that those are you probably shouldn't be drinking plain water all that often if you're exercising. Is that pretty true? It's hard to say. It really depends on the person. Yeah, and probably sweat rate and all that. We, <laughs> yeah. should, we should run it back and do a second episode. Yeah, it's hard because then you don't want to blanket say, okay, everyone needs four LMNTs <laughs> per day. That's too much. Yeah, But you yep. know, it also depends on what electrolyte supplement are you choosing if you're yeah. choosing something like LMNT versus the liquid IV and are going to have wildly different variables of each of those. Definitely. Yeah, it's good to know. To read that. the label. Yes, 100%. And in terms of these supplements, do you usually recommend just like trying to get them in in your diet? Are there pros and cons to doing it in like a multivitamin form? How do you think about that? Yeah, so most of the time I, I try to assess someone's diet. So I would say I try to assess to see if people are getting these things in their diet before recommending supplementation, because if you're getting it in your diet, you don't need the supplements. You're just paying to pee these out. And so mm-hmm. I don't want mm-hmm. people to waste their money. And so I would say it really depends on what people are eating. And I try to identify where people might be lacking in their diet. You know, if I have a vegan um, person training for an Ironman, I might recommend an iron supplement if their iron labs indicate that Mm -hmm. they're not getting enough iron. But otherwise, their labs look good. I would say I would not recommend a supplement for Mm -hmm. that reason. And actually, on that point, how do you think about vegan or vegetarian athletes? Because we work with a lot of people who don't eat meat and rely almost entirely on plant-based products. So how do you make recommendations for them? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I also have a lot of plant-based clients. And I would say definitely you can get enough protein through plant-based foods. You just have to be mindful of getting enough uh, protein through soy products, through legumes. Um, There are a lot of ways to get enough protein. I mean, whole grains have protein in them. Vegetables have protein. Mm -hmm. Just being mindful when you're eating enough calories, you can get enough protein. And so it's really, really important for everyone, but especially plant-based people 
to make sure they're getting enough calories to up their protein intake, up their carbohydrate intake in the right way. Mm -hmm. And do you recommend going plant-based? There's a lot of hype out there about like everyone should be plant-based. Do you have a stance on that or do you really recommend kind of whatever works for people? Yeah. So we actually, my group with Christopher Gardner, Justin Sonnenberg, Matt Landry is the other first author on the paper. Uh, We just had this big plant-based twins trial that came out. And so it's been really fun to kind of be a part of that study And for environmental reasons and for health reasons, I think that it's great to incorporate more plant-based foods as a part of your diet. The cliche dietitian recommendation encourage everyone to eat more vegetables. That being said, myself, I eat meat in kind of a supplementary role in my diet. And so I really think it depends on everyone's personal preferences, but Mm -hmm. a lot of good reasons to go plant-based. Absolutely. Um, All right. So new topic. I hear a lot from my athletes about different GI issues surrounding training, especially racing, especially runners. There tends to be a lot of different GI GI issues that can really impact your race day and ruin your day. So how do you approach this if this is something someone's struggling with? Yeah, no, I have a lot of similar clients, especially people training for their first marathon. I feel like this is something I see a lot. You're not used to taking in sugary fuel. Not used to running that long of distances with the stimulus to your GI tract. And so I would say really training your gut is super important. So training your gut to handle the running, to handle the fuel. So a good training plan on the physical side of it is going to be very important just to get your body used to handling more miles at a time and get your gut used to handling more miles at a time like that stimulus. And then as far as fueling goes, I always recommend kind of slowly ramping up the grams of carbohydrate per hour. You know, if I'm recommending, let's say, 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour to someone, I would never recommend just starting with that if you've never taken in fuel during working out before. And so I always recommend starting with around 30 grams per hour and slowly ramping up week by week. I try to see my patients every two weeks when they're early on and then we work on that together. So ramping up by X grams per week, depending on how they tolerated the previous two weeks and going from there. Always setting up your run to have bathrooms along the way so you don't end up in an emergency situation because your gut, you can't predict how it's going to respond until you train it. Mm -hmm. That's really, really helpful. And I think We've heard a lot, at least in the endurance community, about people getting up to 100, 120 grams per hour in terms of carbs. Do you have thoughts on like what that upper limit is or whether we can really see these big performance gains if we just keep pushing it higher? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. I know those the newer studies are, are quite fascinating to read. And I think it's really fun to think that those limits can continue to be pushed the way I always explain it to patients. So when you're calculating your caloric intake for the day, right? It's Mm -hmm. always based on activity level, weight, height, you know, lots of these factors that come into play. But when you're calculating your grams of carbohydrate per hour, it's actually calculated on how much we think your GI tract can absorb per hour. Mm -hmm. So independent of your caloric intake, um, often a smaller person might think that they need less grams of carbohydrate per hour. And that's possibly just not true because it's really based on the absorbance is a limiting factor, mm. not everyone needing a different amount because they're smaller or larger or work out more or whatnot. So you're training your GI tract to absorb more grams of carbohydrate per hour. And, and it makes sense that, you know, someone working out intensely all the time would have trained their GI tract to handle a little bit more per hour. Mm-hmm. Right. That is fascinating. And 
Is it really just training? That's how you can figure out how to absorb more power? Do people have baseline differences in their ability to absorb carbs? I imagine there are some genetic differences. You know, I think it's really hard. The studies for these are often so small because mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about the funding in sports nutrition. And so mm-hmm. it's just like, I wish there was more money to have more people enrolled in all of these trials. But mm-hmm. you know, the variability is always quite vast when you have mm-hmm. limited number of people enrolled in these studies. But yeah, no, I would love to see more research. Yeah, we should get the entire Endurance Drive community <laughs> to participate in a research yeah. study that is designed by us. This is our pitch. <laughs> this, is, this is it. Yes. Stanford, are you listening? <laughs> um, okay, another topic that we alluded to earlier before that I really want to get into is this idea of underfueling. And I think a question that I get often as a coach that I kind of want to kick over to you is just, how do I know if I'm getting enough? How do I know if I'm underfueling? What should I be looking out for if I'm an athlete that's worried about that? Oh, that's a great question. I think it's really hard to identify in ourselves because often we're really, really biased, right? It's something that you don't want to think that you're doing a bad job at fueling yourself, right? Um, Some common symptoms, so relative energy deficiency in sport is the term that we use, so red. So common symptoms that I would recommend people look out for is amenorrhea. So if you're a woman and you're no longer experiencing a period, and don't have something that would otherwise perturb you from having a period like you know birth control and IUD that I mean even if you are some, that's a sign mm-hmm. um cardiac abnormalities so low resting heart rate but really any unexpected cardiac abnormality is something to just keep in mind so high heart rate variability as well um dehydration extra GI problems these things are hard because these are Symptoms that we experience when we work out a lot as well. Stress factors and overuse injuries are huge ones. So if someone's really struggling from overuse injuries over and over again, underfueling could really be at the root of that. Um, weight loss is kind of an obvious one, but something that you might brush under the rug considering you're working out more, right? Mm-hmm. And so all of these are are really hard to identify, but just kind of thinking additively if someone's experiencing all of these and then fatigue and weakness is kind of the last one where, again, if you're working out a lot, you might think, oh, it's because I went on a really long run. I'm just really fatigued. But if you're fueling enough, you should be able to recover better and not be experiencing these symptoms all the time. Mm-hmm. I think also we could probably add like getting sick a lot. I've heard yeah. that one as well as low sex drive, which is easier to identify in men who don't have their period as a signal. Yeah, Uh, that's a great point. So if you're experiencing these, what do you think the next step is to try to get out of that? Is it really just a matter of fueling? Is there more that you need to be thinking about? Yeah, so fueling enough and seeking help, right? This Mm -hmm. is a really hard thing to focus on individually, looking for guidance and how you should be fueling, whether that be your primary care provider, whether that be a dietitian. Whether that even just be a parent or a friend to hold you accountable if you're not able to get to the doctor right away or whatnot, just looking for help is really important because this is something that people often can't fight on their own. Uh, It sounds silly, but it's really hard to fuel ourselves appropriately when Mm -hmm. you fall into this energy deficiency. Mm -hmm. And I think this actually dovetails a little bit with in the endurance community, we know that there's a lot of disordered eating, eating disorders, and that isn't necessarily a precondition for relative energy deficiency in sport, but is very highly correlated, I imagine, often can be a contributing factor. I know you've worked with athletes or just people in general experiencing eating disorders. Why do you think these challenges are so common in this community? Yeah, it's really hard to watch. I think that, like you said, there's a lot of social pressure. A lot of my patients 
people say, oh, it's really awkward if I'm on a group bike ride and no one else wants to stop for fuel, but I need it. And, you know, it, you don't want to feel like you're making everyone else stop. And if you can't, you know, get your snack out from your back pocket or your saddlebag or something in time, it can be uncomfortable, but it's really important to advocate for yourself, but can be really uncomfortable with it. Let's say a new group of people you're working out with, you don't want to feel like you can't do it. I think that's a, a pride thing sometimes for people, or if you see other people going on the same run without fueling, feeling like, okay, well, I also could. And it's like, sure, but your recovery is going to be much better if you fuel during the run. Your you know, performance is going to be much better if you fuel during the run. So just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. But I think these social pressures can be really hard to uh, know how to navigate. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that you can surround yourself with people who are really like, let's stop at every copy yeah. shop and let's get cookies and all of that. I think that's something that I'm really grateful for in our community, at least in the community that I train with. It's like every single bike ride, unless it's a race, will stop with some special treat. And I know that a lot of people don't have that community. So seeking that out. Would you say that if like, you go on this fast group ride every week and that's really just not the culture, should we think about liquid nutrition? Are there other ways that we can even just like, sneak this in to get the right fuel that we need? Yeah, liquid nutrition is a great option. I think if it's a quick ride, let's say it's a fast ride, it's really only going to be under two hours. You know, that's mm -hmm. something you can do. But if you're going to go ride for, let's say, four hours or so, you're probably going to need to stop for something at that point. You're not going to have what you need in your bottles. And so figuring out ways that work for you. And like you said, supporting yourself with people that will support your nutrition goals mm -hmm. is really important. And if you feel like you sort of are in this disordered eating or eating disorder land, and it's really hard to kind of get out of that, how do you approach this from a dietitian's perspective? Yeah, so it, it can be really quite all-consuming. And when I was working in the hospital, you tackle it with the whole care team. And so you have your psychiatrist and mental health professionals then you have the primary care provider and the dietitian and the social worker. There's a lot of people involved usually. And so finding a supportive team is really important for the patient. That being said, the patient often doesn't know how to advocate or what to look for. And so I think just going to a center that is used to dealing with this type mm -hmm. of patient is really important. Absolutely. They're going to provide you with the type of care that you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we probably both just want to say, if you're struggling with this, please reach out for help. You can, that can even just start with talking to a friend, a parent, a coach, a trusted other, and then trying to get into some more professional help. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's not something to just try to muscle through on your own because it can be really challenging. Yeah, definitely. No, there's a book. Uh, Wendy Sterling has this book, Fueling Yourself Through an Eating Disorder. And that's a good one just kind of as a first resource for people to the plate by plate approach is the term that she's coined and just a, a first resource for people. But again, really having a support system is really important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so a topic that is very much on the other side of that coin is we do often get athletes who come to us and want to lose weight for performance reasons, for health reasons in the context of training. And I think my perspective has always been that unless a doctor has told you that you need to lose weight for health reasons, then I don't recommend it. But I know this is a really challenging topic because it is so common, especially just in the training industry in general. So how do you think about this as a dietitian? No, that's a great question. I mean, I, I get this question all the time. I have a lot of people that come to me as a patient looking for weight loss, and that's something I support as a dietitian. But if I have someone training for, let's say, a half Ironman, something where it's going to be multiple hours of training per day, I don't recommend weight loss during that training phase. I would say, let's say your doctor 
recommended you lose weight or for personal health reasons you want to lose weight, I would say, okay, we should focus on weight loss at this point. And I would not be training for this large endurance athletic event, you know, or you focus on if you've decided for yourself that you want to lose weight, not entirely for health reasons, you could focus on training for the athletic event. And then after you're done with that event, then doing a weight loss phase. But I would not intentionally try to lose weight while training multiple hours per day, it's just going to set you up for, you know, we, we talked a lot about those overuse injuries and uh, all the things that can come from energy deficiency in sport. And so I yeah, try to do a phased approach. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I think I've heard some statistic about like there's 41 different factors that impact performance and weight is only one of them. So let's focus on the other 40 while you're in your training cycle. And then if there's a time for that another time in life, that's okay. But yeah, mostly we just want people to be performing to the best of their ability during their training cycle. Yeah. And under fueling is not going to get you there. So yeah, it's really important <laughs> to make sure you're fueling appropriate during that training cycle. And then yeah, focusing on weight loss outside of that cycle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think just a quick disclaimer, we have a lot of young athletes too. So college age athletes, I'm ne- never really recommending it as a coach, but especially young college athletes. That's where You've just got to focus on getting through college and getting through your event. So, oh, definitely. Yeah, I would say even as a dietitian, I always let people come to me. And if they've suggested they want to lose weight, that's something I can support. But I would never tell someone I think you need to do this. Yeah, that's a really valuable perspective. And I appreciate it a lot. Okay, so next question for you is related to physiology. And we're not really a science podcast, but we have a scientist in the room. And that's really exciting. So I was wondering if maybe you could go a little bit into an explanation of the physiology behind fueling for an audience that might not necessarily understand what's going on under the surface. Yeah, no, great questions. And so, yeah, I mentioned using those simple carbohydrates, the simple sugars to fuel during uh, a multi-hour workout, right? And the reason you want to do that is that's our best source of fuel. So simple sugars are going to break down and give you the ATP that you need for your muscles to be working and to be fueling, pushing you forward. Something I also want to bring up is that we have these what's called glycogen stores in our body. And so this is if you eat, let's say, a a bagel after your workout, those bagel carbohydrates are going to be broken down and then rebuilt into these glycogen stores, which are building blocks made of glucose. And so glucose is going to be all branched up and stored in your muscle and your liver and then you can reaccess those when you're working out. And so that's kind of how we get through bridging the gaps between fuel. You know, we're, we're not able to take in the appropriate amount of calories during our workout to completely compensate for what we're burning, right? And so those glycogen stores, we store anywhere from 1,600 to 2,000 kilocalories of a glycogen stored and we can use that during our training. A lot of people talk about this kind of phrase hitting the wall. Typically that refers to when we lose those glycogen stores and you have to switch from having available carbohydrates to use to only burning fat, which just means that we have to work out at a lower intensity. Mm-hmm. And so working out your body's going to want to use carbs as the first source of energy and fat for kind of those lower intensity workouts. And we're using a combination. It's not always just switch where it's only carbs or only fat, but switching the percentage that you're using of those depends on the intensity of the workout. That's really great to know from a physiological perspective because we talk a lot about kind of the zone two training model and how we do it because we want to be faster and we also want to be more efficient at using fat as fuel. So it sounds like this is what's going on there. If we're training at low intensities rather than going 
straight to that carb zone, then maybe we can use them more efficiently in really, really long races. Yeah, no, this lends itself well to I get this question all the time as a dietitian, you know, how can I train myself to be more metabolically flexible? Mm. So this term metabolic flexibility is really uh, the ability to use different substrates during a workout. So like we mentioned, switching from carb to fat, fat to carb. And, you know, a lot of people want to do this through diet. When in reality, it's mainly based on fitness status, not the fueling mm-hmm. source. And so, like you said, doing more zone two training, just working out more in general mm-hmm. is going to help people be uh, more able to burn fat as fuel. That being said, your body still might prefer carbohydrate as fuel, but just having that ability to use fat helps you be a better athlete because you have more fuel to pull from. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And if you're really curious about this for your own physiology, you you can get lactate tested. You can figure out the point, the exact heart rate or speed or intensity at which you're switching to using almost entirely carbs relative to a combination of carbs and fat. So maybe we'll do another episode on the lactate testing, but it is so helpful to have that that scientific perspective on what we're thinking about here. Yeah, no, there's so many fun values you can get for yourself if you're very interested in this. But yeah, no, my main thing is that it's mainly based on fitness status. So yeah, not doing fasted training to try to increase your metabolic flexibility or only eating fat for fuel before your workout. I always joke that, you know, we have body fat and your body's going to pull from that if it needs fat. You don't necessarily need to be yeah. eating fat right before Not the, the workout. Not the of peanut butter that you yeah. tried to inhale before your... Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's good to know. Well, that's the majority of the structured questions that I have, but we do have a favorite segment that we always end with called Gear Pick of the Week. So I was thinking this week we could do a snack pick of the week and share some of our favorite snacks. So what is your favorite training or racing related snack? Oh, that's a good question. I really like, I make my own snacking cookies, I call them. So yeah, I make a little like oat chocolate cookies for myself on my bike ride. So that's not something you can go buy. I'm sorry. But yeah, kind of snacking cookies are my snack of choice. Is it a secret recipe or would you share it with us? It's probably on my Instagram. I share a lot of recipes or on my website. I have a lot of different recipes on those. So check it out. We'll try to link that in the extended show notes. And speaking of following you on Instagram. Where can we learn more about you? Are you currently taking clients in your private practice? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'm taking clients currently. Um, It really goes phasally. And so if I fill up, then I have a wait list for people. But at this moment, yeah, my website is my name. So katepward.com. I'm sure it will be linked here. And then the same, my Instagram handles the same thing. So Kate with a C. I remember that. But yeah, so taking clients and then I have recipes posted and do a lot of little sciencey posts on my Instagram for those interested. Awesome. Well, I love your Instagram and I love your expertise and I love sending our coaching clients over to you for nutrition support. So thank you so much for lending all that expertise to us and being here and uh, teaching us everything that you know. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Mm-hmm. 